Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss whether there are an adequate number of healthcare providers to meet the healthcare services demand in an Affordable Care Act world. With me to discuss the topic is Dartmouth's Dr. David C. Goodman. Welcome, David. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here and, and talk about this issue. Thank you again. As always, let me begin with some background. The Congressional Budget Office estimates the Affordable Care Act will, in 2014, add 14 million lives, uh, or by 2014, add 14 million lives to the health care insurance rolls and 25 million lives by 2016. However, according to HRSA, the Health Services Research Administration, the country is already experiencing a health care workforce shortage. For example, HRSA estimates there are currently 5,900 what it terms primary care shortage areas that today require an additional 18,000 primary care physicians. That's if you assume a ratio of one physician for every 2,000 patients. HRSA, the the Association of American Medical Colleges and others calculate that between 2020 and 25, this shortage will grow to somewhere between 55 and 65,000 primary care physicians. Among other factors, uh, the issue is complicated by the fact that, for example, the patient outcomes are not better in regions with very large supplies of physicians. With me then to discuss again workforce adequacy is David uh, Goodman. Let me begin, Dr. Goodman, by asking you, first, how would you categorize the current adequacy of healthcare, of the healthcare workforce, specifically uh, the adequacy of physicians? And before uh, you answer, let me note, estimating what is an adequate number of providers can be as much art as science, since, for example, there's no agreed-upon standard of what an appropriate doctor-to-patient ratio is. Well, I... I, I whether we have a, a, a shortage or not depends upon uh, one's perspective. Uh, and if we're talking about an, a national perspective, that is an aggregate, do we have a shortage? Uh, I think that there's a fairly good evidence that, that even today we have a sufficient number uh, of physicians. But we have significant problems in terms of uh, some parts of the country, um, particularly in terms of primary care. And, and I think that one can also argue that there uh, is also a larger problem in terms of a shortage of certain types of services, such as primary care services. I have to be careful about this to equate that a shortage or a need for additional services, that the best remedy is to add more physicians, particularly just adding more physicians to the, the national workforce. We know that, that um, physicians, when physician supply increases, it tends to increase in areas that are already well-served um, for populations that tend to be more aff- affluent. And so these supply side solutions to uh, inadequate level of services are often very ineffective and, and tend to perpetuate um, uh, inefficiencies in our system. Okay, let me then, uh, leaving aside then, uh, simply growing the number of physicians and other healthcare professionals, what do you think can be done now to better ensure an adequate number of healthcare providers, particularly per the points you just made? The, the distribution right. of particularly yeah. where they locate. Well, I, I think in, in terms of lo, you know, the locational uh, problems, if we're thinking and most concerns say about health profession shortage areas or medically underserved areas, then we, we know that there are specific programs, federal programs, but also some state programs that have been very, very successful, such as the National Health Service Corps or uh, community health centers, that one could argue 
still tend to be uh, under-resourced. And so those very targeted programs do bring uh, medical, um, bring clinicians and, and services into those, into those areas. In terms of the more general issue of how do we ensure that we continue to have a you know, very well-trained um, supply of physicians of adequate numbers uh, so we don't, we're always going to have some spot shortages, but we certainly need to avoid um, um, crises. Uh, that really is going to hinge upon uh, having a more flexible and more sort of self-learning uh, GME system. Right now we have a sclerotic uh, pipeline that's really frozen in time uh, from 1997 when, when Medicare funding was essentially uh, capped and it just has kind of perpetuated a view of, of, of health care from the, from the 1990s. Well, let's, let's go there then and let's note your article just published in Health Affairs where you actually address opportunities to improve graduate medical education, or as you just said, uh, the pipeline problem. Uh, and per your comment, too, just noted about it being sclerotic, what explains the fact that we've more or less capped the number of slots, for residency slots, since 1997? Right. Well, I mean, the concern in 1997 <clears throat> was that, that we were training too many physicians. And keep in mind that 1997, any teaching hospital could start a new program, could increase the number of residents um, or fellows within a, a training program, and Medicare would pay for that. So it was really, uh, it was, you know, a sort of a, another form of Medicare entitlement, not entitlement of the over 65 population, but as entitlement essentially of, of teaching programs, and rather unique as in, in, in uh, the federal landscape. As you might imagine, it led to a great increase in the number of programs, um, and there were a lot of concerns also about th the way it was skewed towards um, towards specialists. Congress didn't think that, that it was bringing good value. They capped it. I think one of the related questions is why hasn't anything changed in, in the intervening 16 years? And, and I, I think the reason for that, that there hasn't been much change, despite the fact that there's been lots of opportunities for Congress to act, including the ACA. And you'll note that Congress didn't act with the ACA is because of this worry about, um, uh, about what would be the alternative system of, of funding, that, uh, that just allowing um, teaching hospitals to decide how many of what type they're going to train, um, there's no expectation that it's going to bring good value um, to the U.S. population or that it really is anticipating the need of an evolving delivery system. So Congress has been very, very, um, very, very cautious in approaching this because of the lack of assurance um, of, of, of value and of, of incorporating public guidance in the process. So would you say, since they didn't really know what to do, after, since 1997 they haven't done anything, but you propose in your recent, again, Health Affairs article, a possible uh, solution or approach to more wisely grow uh, the pipeline. So can you explain what you propose in the article? So we should keep in mind that of all the good ideas in terms of where we should go in GME or the physician workforce, and, and let's agree that there's often little agreement in this, but whatever those ideas are, currently we don't have a way actually of operationalizing them. We don't have a system of funding that's in place, certainly, that would in any meaningful way shape graduate medical education or the workforce to any of the different ideas 
whether they be David Goodman who says, you know, we probably have just about the right number, or whether it be the AAMC that says that we need to have an increase of three or 4,000 new positions. So this, so the problem um, really is, is that we have not spent enough time thinking about the process of awarding, awarding funding, existing funding or new funding. And what I proposed <clears throat> is that we move to uh, a system of accountability through competitive GME awards. The um, nuts and bolts of this very quickly are that a public body, and this might be the Health Workforce Commission or some other public body, with broad representation of both medical educators as well as the delivery system as well as the public, each year set uh, these annual priorities that relate to the work, the pipeline size, the specialty mix, as well as what are the priorities in terms of innovation and changes in, in training. Now, not all of those years' resources would be directed towards those priorities. I mean, every year we need to provide for the broad needs of, of graduate medical educational training, but this puts a thumb on the scale in terms of the review process to give some additional weight to these factors. Existing programs and new programs, aspiring programs, would compete in, uh, for those funds, 10% uh, of each uh, of, of a year's, uh, of, of the given programs in a year would, would compete. Uh, and this would allow for entrance of, of new programs, existing programs that are meritorious in this process could expand, and programs that don't do so well would see some decrement uh, in their funding. So the program, the, the overall GME program could expand depending on sort of the quality of services provided. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in terms of what they propose in terms of, you know, the fantastic um, graduate medical education environment they're going to provide uh, along some of these programmatic priorities uh, would allow, you know, existing programs to expand. And, what we, and it may be that, it's, that the existing programs actually are in the best position under this system to expand, but now they really have an incentive for innovation, just like we incentivize researchers under the NIH, NIH system to be highly innovative and to advance, uh, to advance science. This is a, a system, a peer-reviewed system, that would provide the incentives to advance the science, if you will, and the implementation of a better graduate medical education. Now, I know you've been asked this question, but one question on the mechanics. So there would be this peer review, somewhat similar to the NIH process, to perform this evaluation relative to who was performing, say, above or beyond expectation, who was underperforming. Can you tell me a little bit more about exactly what that, who, who would make up that body? So we, we think of, of, two, of a couple of different bodies here. One is what I call the, the public or programmatic guidance, which, um, and very similar, again, to the, the way NIH sets some broad priorities um, for a given year. Not that, you know, some other meritorious application that no one thought of might not, you know, gain credence, but, but there is this, uh, this, this broad guidance. And that would include, again, those in the delivery system, um, public health people, medical educators, and the public. The actual re review process, the study sections, then need to review the applications in accordance with the public guidance as well as the general good principles of graduate medical education, of training physicians. And uh, those you know, are likely to be heavily skewed towards medical educators. Um, um, but like uh, any study section, would also have a complement 
of, of those who are, have experience and knowledge of evaluating education, um, who are uh, knowledgeable about the delivery system, knowledge about um, um, population needs. And the study sections could certainly also bring in ad hoc reviewers um, in response to, again, specific public guidance. If there's a specific, for example, um, priority, uh, for example, of encouraging innovative or additional training in pathologists, then logically that study section not, would not just be reviewing those applications, but, would, but certainly that study section would want to bring in expertise on that particular topic so it could fairly uh, evaluate the proposals. Let me ask you one last question about your proposal, and I realize it may be too early uh, to say, but any sense of what um, the response has been to this idea, say amongst policymakers or even in the professional community of graduate medical educators? Curiosity. There's been um, a, a lot of curiosity. I've been getting phone calls um, in the last week since this paper's come out. Uh, and I think that there's a, uh, there's a growing recognition that whether this is a solution or not, that we're going to have to do some serious thinking about how we do want to transform the way that we're actually funding this money, that the current mechanisms are, are not going to serve uh, any of the ideas, um, whether they be good ideas or ideas that we disagree about, um, that are now represented in, in the great dialogue about graduate medical education. So this really uh, uh, paper is helping to stimulate uh, that conversation and, and whether we end up uh, with my idea or some, uh, some, some variant of that or something entirely different, I think that it you know, makes the point that if we just continue to do the same thing over and over again, we're not going to see any different future. And suffice to say, you can't change how we deliver health care until we change how we train the workforce that delivers the health care. There's a push in the pull. So there's no question that, that graduate medical education and physicians help to change the delivery system, and the delivery system also is a strong pull. It's nice when they're getting physicians who are trained according to what their needs are. We know now that, that many healthcare systems really need to add their own sort of organizational apprenticeship to GME because they're not getting a training of, of what many of us would consider really some basic uh, knowledge and skill sets. All right, let me just ask you one last question. Um, and that's in, uh, 20, in 2008 in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, you, published an arg uh, you published an article where you ar ar argued uh, the presence of more physicians doesn't necessarily translate uh, to better care. So here quantity does not necessarily equal quality uh, because patient outcomes research shows are not uh, better in regions, again, with larger, necessarily better in regions with larger supplies of physicians. So therefore, my question is, how do we avoid simply driving up costs with no population health improvements? I think it's important that we keep a lean physician workforce. Um, uh, there is a real opportunity cost um, when we add too many physicians to a marketplace, and, and I actually, you know, actually we don't add physicians to a marketplace. Physicians decide where they're going to go, and and all over the world, um, we're not going to change that. Um, but given that, that, that uh, we as physicians tend to practice in, in places where needs are lower, um, we have to be very, very cautious about adding uh, a, a physician, adding physician capacity. Other clinicians are going to be very, very important um, to the future, like they are important right now to, uh, to the present uh, healthcare delivery system. 
Um, they uh, add a lot more flexibility, um, particularly than, than adding uh, highly specialized physicians. Organizational factors, we know, are, are terrifically important. It is remarkable how different healthcare delivery systems can operate with very, very different effective physician supplies without even knowing that they're different than what they would see as their peer. And that's reflected in, in the different ways that they've organized care and the different ways that they've used the labor. It's evolved very slowly over time. Um, and healthcare systems need to, to have that chance to be able to evolve, but it also speaks to the caution about using supply, that is supply of physicians in anticipation of, of, of trying to solve some of our needs in, in, in healthcare. Um, much greater emphasis then on, on organization and on other clinicians. Uh, lean physician supply um, is very important in terms of uh, helping to, to shape the delivery system in the right direction. Well, with that, David, uh, we're at our time boundary. I hope you're, this, this research gains some uh, greater interest and traction, and time will tell, and we'll hope for the best. Thank you again for your time. Well, thank you, David. I enjoyed this.